Welcome to Quanta Magazine's Science Podcast. Come for the science, stay for the stories. For news, interviews, videos, graphics, and more, visit quantamagazine.org. This week on the podcast, in the search for signs of life on faraway planets, astrobiologists must decide which telltale gases to target. Then, in our second segment, columnist Ingrid Dobshi explains why mathematicians still have big questions about how machine learning works. First, Scientists Debate Signatures of Alien Life by Natalie Wolchover. Huddled in a coffee shop one drizzly Seattle morning six years ago, Astrobiologist Sean Domigo Goldman stared blankly at his laptop screen, paralyzed. He had been running a simulation of an evolving planet when suddenly oxygen started accumulating in the virtual planet's atmosphere. Up the concentration ticked from 0 to 5 to 10 percent. Is something wrong? his wife asked. Yeah, he said. The rise of oxygen was bad news for the search for extraterrestrial life. After millennia of wondering whether we're alone in the universe, the hunt for life on other planets is now ramping up in a serious way. Thousands of exoplanets or planets orbiting stars other than the Sun have been discovered in the past decade. Among them are potential super-Earths, sub-Neptunes, hot Jupiters, and worlds such as Kepler-452b, a possibly rocky, watery Earth cousin located 1,400 light-years from here. Starting with the expected 2018 launch of NASA's James Webb Space Telescope, astronomers will be able to peer across the light years and scope out the atmospheres of the most promising exoplanets. They will look for the presence of biosignature gases, vapors that could only be produced by alien life. They'll do this by observing the thin ring of starlight around an exoplanet while it is positioned in front of its parent star. Gases in the exoplanet's atmosphere will absorb certain frequencies of starlight, leaving telltale dips in the spectrum. Domigo Goldman was then a researcher at the University of Washington's Virtual Planetary Laboratory, or VPL. As he well knew, the gold standard in biosignature gases is oxygen. Not only is oxygen produced in abundance by Earth's flora, and thus possibly other planets, but also 50 years of conventional wisdom held that it could not be produced at detectable levels by geology or photochemistry alone, making it a forgery-proof signature of life. Oxygen filled the sky on Domigo Goldman's simulated world, however, not as a result of biological activity there, but because extreme solar radiation was stripping oxygen atoms off carbon dioxide molecules in the air faster than they could recombine. The gold standard biosignature could be forged after all. The search for biosignature gases around faraway exoplanets is an inherently messy problem, said Victoria Meadows, who heads VPL. In the years since Domigo Goldman's discovery, Meadows has charged her team of 75 with identifying the major oxygen false positives that can arise on exoplanets as well as ways to distinguish these false alarms from true oxygenic signs of biological activity. Meadows still thinks oxygen is the best biosignature gas, but she said, if I'm going to look for this, I want to make sure that when I see it, I know what I'm seeing. Meanwhile, Sarah Seeger, a dogged hunter of twin Earths at MIT, 
is pushing research on biosignature gases in a different direction. Seeger, widely credited with inventing the spectral technique for analyzing exoplanet atmospheres, acknowledges that oxygen is promising. But she urges the astrobiology community to be less terracentric in its view of how alien life might operate, to think beyond Earth's geochemistry and the particular air we breathe. My view is that we do not want to leave a single stone unturned. We need to consider everything, she said. As future telescopes widen the survey of Earth-like worlds, it's only a matter of time before a potential biosignature gas is detected in a faraway sky. It will look like the discovery of all time, evidence that we are not alone. But how will we know for sure? Scientists must quickly hone their models and address the caveats if they are to select the best exoplanets to target with the James Webb Telescope. Because of the hundreds of hours it will take to examine the spectrum for each planetary atmosphere and the many competing demands on its time, the telescope will likely only observe between one and three Earth-like worlds in the habitable Goldilocks zones of nearby stars. In choosing from a growing list of known exoplanets, the scientists want to avoid planetary circumstances in which oxygen false positives arise. We're looking at maybe putting our eggs, if not all in one basket, at least in only a couple of baskets, Meadows said. So it's important to try and figure out what we should be looking for there. And in particular, how we might get fooled. Oxygen has been regarded as the gold standard since the chemist James Lovelock first contemplated biosignature gases in 1965, while working for NASA on methods of detecting life on Mars. Frank Drake and other pioneers of astrobiology sought to detect radio signals coming from distant alien civilizations, an ongoing effort called the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, or SETI. But Lovelock reasoned that the presence of life on other planets could be deduced by looking for incompatible gases in their atmosphere. If two gases that react with each other can both be detected, then some lively biochemistry must be continually replenishing the planet's atmospheric supplies. In Earth's case, though, oxygen readily reacts with hydrocarbons and minerals in the air and ground to produce water and carbon dioxide. Diatomic oxygen, or O2, comprises a steady 21% of the atmosphere. Oxygen persists because it is poured into the sky by Earth's photosynthesizers, plants, algae, and cyanobacteria. They enlist sunlight to strip hydrogen atoms off water molecules, building carbohydrates and releasing the oxygen byproduct as waste. If photosynthesis ceased, the existing oxygen in the sky would react with elements in the crust and drop to trace levels in 10 million years. Eventually, Earth would resemble Mars, with its carbon dioxide-filled air and rusty, oxidized surface. Evidence, Lovelock argued, that the red planet does not currently harbor life. But while oxygen is a trademark of life on Earth, why should that be true elsewhere? Meadows argues that photosynthesis offers such a clear evolutionary advantage that it is likely to become widespread in any biosphere. Photosynthesis puts the biggest source of energy on any planet, its sun, to work on the most common place of planetary raw materials, water and carbon dioxide. If you want to have the uber metabolism, you will try and evolve something that will allow you to use sunlight because that's where it's at, Meadows said. 
Oxygen also boasts strong absorption bands in the visible and near-infrared, the exact sensitivity range of both the $8 billion James Webb Telescope and the Wide Field Infrared Survey Telescope, a mission planned for the 2020s. With so many imminent hopes riding on oxygen, Meadows is determined to know where the gotchas are likely to be. So far, her team has identified three major non-biological mechanisms that can flood an atmosphere with oxygen, producing false positives for life. On planets that formed around small, young M-dwarf stars, for instance, intense ultraviolet sunlight can in certain cases boil down the planet's oceans, creating an atmosphere thick with water vapor. At high altitudes, as VPL scientists reported in the journal Astrobiology in 2015, intense UV radiation splinters off the lightweight hydrogen atoms. These atoms then escape to space, leaving behind a veil of oxygen thousands of times denser than Earth's atmosphere. The smallness of M-dwarf stars makes it easier to detect much smaller rocky planets passing in front of them. Those planets are the intended targets for NASA's Transiting Exoplanet Survey Satellite, or TESS, a planet-finding mission scheduled to launch next year. The Earth-like planets that will be studied by the James Webb Telescope will be selected from among TESS's finds. With these candidates on the way, astrobiologists must learn how to distinguish between alien photosynthesizers and runaway ocean boiling. In work that is now being prepared for publication, Meadows and her team show that a spectral absorption band from tetraoxygen, or O4, loosely forms when O2 molecules collide. The denser the O2 in an atmosphere, the more molecular collisions occur and the stronger the O4 signal becomes. According to Meadows, we can look for the O4 to give us the telltale signs that we are looking at something that just has massive amounts of oxygen in it. A strong carbon monoxide signal will identify the false positive that Domingo Goldman first encountered that drizzly morning in 2010. Now a research scientist at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center in Greenbelt, Maryland, he says he isn't worried about oxygen's long-term prospects as a reliable biosignature gas. Oxygen false positives only happen in rare cases, he said, and the planet that has those certain cases is also going to have observational properties that we should be able to detect, as long as we think about it in advance, which is what we're doing right now. He and other astrobiologists are also mindful, though, of oxygen false negatives, planets that harbor life but have no detectable oxygen in their atmosphere. Both the false positives and false negatives have helped convince Sarah Seeger of the need to think beyond oxygen and explore quirkier biosignatures. If the diverse exoplanet discoveries of the past decade have taught us anything, it's that planetary sizes, compositions, and chemistries vary dramatically. By treating oxygen as the be-all, end-all biosignature gas, Seeger argues, we might miss something. And with a personal dream of discovering signs of alien life, the 44-year-old can't abide by that. Even on Earth, Seeger points out, photosynthesizers were pumping out oxygen for hundreds of millions of years before the process overwhelmed Earth's oxygen sinks and oxygen started accumulating in the sky 2.4 billion years ago. Until about 600 million years ago, judged from a distance by its oxygen levels alone, Earth might have appeared lifeless. 
Meadows and her collaborators have studied some alternatives to oxygenic photosynthesis. But Seeger, along with William Baines and Janice Petkowski, are championing what they call the all-molecules approach. They're compiling an exhaustive database of molecules, 14,000 so far, that could plausibly exist in gas form. On Earth, many of these molecules are emitted in trace amounts by exotic creatures huddled in ocean vents and other extreme milieus. They don't accumulate in the atmosphere. The gases might accrue in other planetary contexts, however. On methane-rich planets, as the researchers argued in 2014, photosynthesizers might harvest carbon from methane rather than carbon dioxide and spew hydrogen rather than oxygen leading to an abundance of ammonia. The ultimate long-term goal is to look at another world and make some informed guesses as to what life might produce on that world, said Baines, who splits his time between MIT and Rufus Scientific in the United Kingdom. Domagal Goldman agrees that thinking both deeply about oxygen and broadly about all the other biochemical possibilities is important. Because all these surprises have happened in our detections of the masses and radii and orbital properties of these other worlds, he said. Astronomers are going to keep pushing on the people like me who come from an Earth sciences background, saying, let's think further outside the box. That is a healthy and necessary pressure. Meadows, however, questions the practicality of the all-molecules approach. In a 3,000-word email critiquing Seeger's ideas, she wrote, After you build this exhaustive database, how do you identify those molecules that are most likely to be produced by life? And how do you identify their false positives? She concluded, You will still have to be guided by life on Earth, and our understanding of planetary environments and how life interacts with those environments. In contemplating what life might be like, it's exasperatingly difficult to escape the only data point we have, for now. In a 2013 symposium, Seeger presented a revised version of the Drake equation, Frank Drake's famous 1961 formula for gauging the odds that SETI would succeed. The Drake equation multiplied a string of mostly unknown factors to estimate the number of radio broadcasting civilizations in the galaxy. Seeger's equation estimates the number of planets with detectable biosignature gases. With the modern capacity to look for any life regardless of whether it's intellectually capable of beaming messages into space, calculating our chances of success no longer depends on uncertainties like the rareness of intelligence as an evolutionary outcome or the galactic popularity of radio technology. However, one of the biggest unknowns remains, the probability that life will arise in the first place on a rocky, watery, atmospheric planet like ours. A biogenesis, as the mystery event is called, seems to have occurred not long after Earth accumulated liquid water, leading some to speculate that life might start up readily, even inevitably, under favorable conditions. But if so, then shouldn't abiogenesis have happened multiple times in Earth's 4.5 billion year history, spawning several biochemically distinct lineages rather than a monoculture of DNA-based life? University of Washington microbiologist John Barrows, who studies the origins of life, explained that abiogenesis might well have happened repeatedly 
creating a menagerie of genetic codes, structures, and metabolisms on early Earth. But gene-swapping and Darwinian selection would have merged these different upstarts into a single lineage, which has since colonized virtually every environment on Earth, preventing new upstarts from gaining ground. In short, it's virtually impossible to tell whether a biogenesis was a fluke event or a common occurrence, here or elsewhere in the universe. Scheduled to speak last at the 2013 symposium, Seeger set a light-hearted tone for the after-party. I put it all in our favor, she said, positing that life has a 100% chance of arising on Earth-like planets, and that half of these biospheres will produce detectable biosignature gases, another uncertainty in her equation. Crunching these wildly optimistic numbers yielded the prediction that two signs of alien life would be found in the next decade. You're supposed to laugh, Seeger said. Meadows, Seeger, and their colleagues agree that the odds of such a detection this decade are slim. Though the prospects will improve with future missions, the James Webb Telescope would have to get extremely lucky to pick a winner in its early attempts. And even if one of its targeted planets does harbor life, spectral measurements are easily foiled. In 2013, the Hubble Space Telescope monitored the starlight passing through the atmosphere of a mid-sized planet called GJ1214b, but the spectrum was flat, with no chemical fingerprints at all. Seeger and her collaborators reported in Nature that a high-altitude layer of clouds appeared to have obscured the planet's sky from view. Second, Big Data's Mathematical Mysteries by Ingrid Dobshi. At a dinner I attended some years ago, the distinguished differential geometer Eugenio Calabi volunteered to me his tongue-in-cheek distinction between pure and applied mathematicians. A pure mathematician, when stuck on the problem under study, often decides to narrow the problem further and so avoid the obstruction. An applied mathematician interprets being stuck as an indication that it is time to learn more mathematics and find better tools. I have always loved this point of view. It explains how applied mathematicians will always need to make use of the new concepts and structures that are constantly being developed in more foundational mathematics. This is particularly evident today in the ongoing effort to understand big data data sets that are too large or complex to be understood using traditional data processing techniques. Our current mathematical understanding of many techniques that are central to the ongoing big data revolution is inadequate at best. Consider the simplest case, that of supervised learning. Supervised learning has been used by companies such as Google, Facebook, and Apple to create voice or image recognition technologies with the near-human level of accuracy. These systems start with a massive corpus of training samples, millions or billions of images or voice recordings, which are used to train a deep neural network to spot statistical regularities. As in other areas of machine learning, the hope is that computers can churn through enough data to learn the task instead of being programmed with the detailed steps necessary for the decision process, 
The computers follow algorithms that gradually lead them to focus on the relevant patterns. In mathematical terms, these supervised learning systems are given a large set of inputs and the corresponding outputs. The goal is for a computer to learn the function that will reliably transform a new input into the correct output. To do this, the computer breaks down the mystery function into a number of layers of unknown functions called sigmoid functions. These S-shaped functions look like a street-to-curb transition, a smoothened step from one level to another, where the starting level, the height of the step, and the width of the transition region are not determined ahead of time. Inputs enter the first layer of sigmoid functions, which spits out results that can be combined before being fed into a second layer of sigmoid functions, and so on. The web of resulting functions constitutes the network in a neural network. A deep one has many layers. Decades ago, researchers proved that these networks are universal, meaning that they can generate all possible functions. Other researchers later proved a number of theoretical results about the unique correspondence between a network and the function it generates. But these results assume networks that can have extremely large numbers of layers and function nodes within each layer. In practice, neural networks use anywhere between two and two dozen layers. Because of this limitation, none of the classical results come close to explaining why neural networks and deep learning work as spectacularly well as they do. It is the guiding principle of many applied mathematicians that if something mathematical works really well, there must be a good underlying mathematical reason for it, and we ought to be able to understand it. In this particular case, it may be that we don't even have the appropriate mathematical framework to figure it out yet. Or if we do, it may have been developed within an area of pure mathematics from which it hasn't yet spread to other mathematical disciplines. Another technique used in machine learning is unsupervised learning, which is used to discover hidden connections in large data sets. Let's say, for example, that you're a researcher who wants to learn more about human personality types. You're awarded an extremely generous grant that allows you to give 200,000 people a 500-question personality test with answers that vary on a scale from 1 to 10. Eventually, you find yourself with 200,000 data points in 500 virtual dimensions, one dimension for each of the original questions on the personality quiz. These points taken together form a lower dimensional surface in the 500-dimensional space in the same way that a simple plot of elevation across a mountain range creates a two-dimensional surface in three-dimensional space. What you would like to do as a researcher is identify this lower dimensional surface, thereby reducing the personality portraits of the 200,000 subjects to their essential properties, a task that is similar to finding that two variables suffice to identify any point in the mountain range surface. Perhaps the personality test surface can also be described with a simple function, a connection between a number of variables that is significantly smaller than 500. This function is likely to reflect a hidden structure in the data. In the last 15 years or so, researchers have created a number of tools to probe the geometry of these hidden structures. For example, you might build a model of the surface by first zooming in at many different points. 
At each point, you would place a drop of virtual ink on the surface and watch how it spreads out. Depending on how the surface is curved at each point, the ink would diffuse in some directions but not in others. If you were to connect all the drops of ink, you would get a pretty good picture of what the surface looks like as a whole. And with this information in hand, you would no longer have just a collection of data points. Now you would start to see the connections on the surface, the interesting loops, folds, and kinks. This would give you a map for how to explore it. These methods are already leading to interesting and useful results, but many more techniques will be needed. Applied mathematicians have plenty of work to do, and in the face of such challenges, they trust that many of their purer colleagues will keep an open mind, follow what is going on, and help discover connections with other existing mathematical frameworks, or perhaps even build new ones. You're listening to Quantum Magazine's Science Podcast with music by Poddington Bear. I'm Cynthia Banu. For news, interviews, graphics, and more, visit quantummagazine.org.